the church and distance them from our precious brothers' and sisters' ears. The false teaching that was addressed was an innocent heirs of doctrine. I'm loaded with innocent heirs of doctrine, and I find I need to shift all the time the deeper I get into God's word, but that isn't what was happening here. These individuals were purposely, um, uh, actually what they were doing is they were blaspheming the gospel and also taking away everything that Jesus had done on the cross. And they were putting it back on the individuals who were listening. And so it was very, very um, poor theology. And again, it was actually blasphemous. And so as we look at Proverbs 25, which put Paul's justice call to action into perspective, this is what Proverbs 25, 11 says about that. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. And so Timothy, while he was a little bit timid in addressing this for some time, and he eventually did after uh, this particular letter, you and I might also be a little bit timid, and it's not an easy thing to do to go up to somebody that say would like be in our church and actually just saying, you know, hey, you're, this is false doctrine you're teaching, knock it off. Uh, and what actually what was happening is that these individuals weren't happy to be told that. That wasn't going to be a nice thing. So we're going to call this week because we're changing direction here, praying for all mankind's behavior and salvation. Now, I will tell you that as I was studying this, I got to thinking how apropos this is for us today. This isn't just to the church in Ephesus, although it certainly was to them. And um, Andy, I didn't forewarn you, but would you mind reading verses 1 and 2, and we'll get into that. First of all, then, Now, there's a big shift, and thank you, Andy. There's a big shift here of change, of focus here from Paul. And this is where I found it to be pretty amazing how quickly he got into first the false teaching. Boom, deal with it. But then also how quickly he switched over and was talking to the church about their prayer life. And, you know, again, as I'm thinking, as I was reading this, I really kind of got... Uh, convicted in realizing my prayer life was not where it should be. Now, what I am glad about is I haven't had somebody like Paul come up and say, hey, straighten up your prayer life. But you know what? I had somebody a little bit stronger doing that, and that was the Holy Spirit. That kind of pointed out many different things. But carefully oversee the church. This was one of the things that was Timothy's or our leaders watches to make sure that we, in fact, do have good prayer lives. Now, that doesn't mean that they do an audit of us. When I say they, I have to be a little careful. We have one elder, but that would be currently. But that would be where an elder is not to go, okay, pull us outside and go, let me hear your prayer life and look at a list on prayer. But, you know, you can kind of tell, first of all, in yourself and sometimes in others, that there's something not quite right in their Christian walk which can usually be directly turned to what's going on in prayer life. Remember the leaders, when they were talking about what Andy read, it's important for us to remember this fact, that the leaders of the day were heathens, enemies of Christianity, and persecutors of Christianity. These weren't just people you didn't agree with. These were a bad set of dudes, bad people, you know, particularly when it came to punishing Christians. And so sometimes I'll sit there and think about our government and I'll kind of say, I find it hard to pray for X. But in reality, we are be praying for X. And by the way, if it's somebody that you really don't like, it's probably a good indicator we really need to pray for that person. And so we'll dig into that a little bit. But it does seem to be the first line of defense that Paul's calling for being of the political arena, so Christians, this is the purpose for the prayer. Andy already gave the answer. 
so that we can experience a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and dignity. Now, this is an interesting point. Our prayer for others has kicks back to us when they're leaders is that God wishes, wills, that we have a peaceful life. That doesn't mean things are always peaceful, but that was one of the motivators for getting the church to be the Ephesus church in Ephesus to pray for their leaders. And it was interesting, I came across uh, Matthew Henry, I, I suppose in this group you most know who he is. Here we have our duty as Christians summed up in two words, godliness, and that is the right worshiping of God, and honesty, which is good conduct towards all men. We must do our duty to God and man. And it reminds me, which I happened to mention, um, uh, I think last week, that you know our prayer life isn't just for us. It is for us, but it's also a prayer life for the well-being of the church. It's for the well-being of the government. It's for the well-being of much, much more than our narrow sometimes thoughts of what prayer is. So Christians can enjoy the God-given benefits that are available within the leader's government that was ordained by God. God ordained these heathens to be leaders. God ordains heathens today to be leaders. And there becomes a fine edge, and we live through an era where we've had some discussions on that, about so how far do we go in, in obeying the government when they make something that appears to be very unbiblical and starts moving in unbiblical ways? And how should we respond to that? So here's clearly what was going on here. We need to be pleading for our leader's salvation and decision-making. That should be the goals. That was the goals of the Ephesian church, and that should be our goals, that we pray for them to make wise decisions, that we pray for them for salvation, which will then in turn have them making wiser decisions. Now, we have to be careful. We have leaders who are saying they're very good Christians, and yet some of their decisions aren't very Christian-like. So it doesn't mean we write those people off. That doesn't mean we get kind of angry at them it really means we need to be praying more for them. Even when we see evil in today's political landscape, we are to do so not only on a local level and a state level, but also a national level. We also need regular prayer time for our workplace leaders, for those of you that work. So back to Paul, he gives Timothy and the church a strong and urgent call and action for prayer. For others, and again, it was an urgency. After all, our prayers need to have a generous amount of time and concern for others, and not just prayer time that is focused entirely on ourselves. Now, it's a great privilege we have. We can pray for things that are on our mind. We can pray for things in our life, but if you're like I am sometimes, you'll shut, shut it off right after that. And in reality, prayer, our prayer life is to be far more expansive of that. And so when you get into that, the couple words that are tied up with that is supplications. And an interlinear Bible simply says prayer. That that would be just really basically prayer. But if we take a more diligent look at the word in this context reveals, supplication brings us to an intense activity of asking or begging for something earnest or humble, humbly. In other words, these aren't prayers of pray for our leaders and happy 4th of July. That's not what it's talking about here. It's pleading that decisions, for instance, now that our state will be making decisions on abortion, we should be pleading God in our prayers for this. Now, before we sit and say, well, it's a given what direction we're going to go, you know, I've been around long enough to know that I can't always figure out what's going to happen when politics are involved, things in life are going to be involved. And we don't know for sure, but we do know that even if we're pretty sure it's going to go in the other direction, we still need to be pleading to God for wisdom now and maybe wisdom down in the future on how we deal with such things as abortion. 
Supplication is not one of those mind-numbing, wandering moments that we sometimes get into when we pray. These are prayers that are intense. These are prayers that really work us up a little bit, that we really, in a sense, I hate to use this word because it really gets um, used incorrectly more than correctly, but feelings behind our prayers. That, that it's not just, I'm glad I prayed that, or that was the right thing for me to pray. Did we plead? Did we humbly plead with our Lord whatever we're praying about? And we also have to remember what our Holy Lord desires is the ultimate direction of our prayers. Now, we don't always understand what that means. And so that's why when we look at the garden, see where Jesus was, we all know that it was intimately, uh, intimate prayer. And there's a prayer asking for some things, a perhaps relief for Jesus, but he topped it off with what? Not my will, but your will. And that's how we know we're on track. If at the end of our prayers, we can honestly say, but Lord, may it be your will. And if I'm off track, Lord, let, let me realize that over time, but let's pray his will. Yeah, Paul was really, if you look at it, he really was shaking Timothy and the church to seriously take the responsibility with prayer. Now, how often do we take prayer seriously? I mean, my goodness, this morning, I think we had three or four prayers in our service. By the time you get to the third one, is your mind a little bit numb and are you kind of buzzed out? Or are you, boy, I hope this ends pretty soon so we can move on. Or do you realize that it is honorable and it is an unbelievable thing that we can be praying and yet it can be one of the hardest parts of spiritual discipline is prayer. The reason being is we can all kind of behave ourselves when we see each other. See each other this morning, see each other this evening. We can be pleasant for a short time. But you know what? How are you when we pray, when we pray silently to God? Are we serious? Are we intense? Or are we got it off my list? Where are we when it comes to that? And are we really aligning our heart with God? That's what we should be doing with our prayer, aligning our hearts with God, aligning our hearts with Jesus. And every part of our prayer ought to be permeated with that. That our prayer is helping align us with him. Now, I was going to go into a thing, but I'm going to pass because it will take a little bit of time. Most of you will probably already know it. I'm not saying there's a right way to pray. But I do know this, that um, the Navigators, that's a Christian organization, you don't know who they are, came up with a thing called the hand. Now, you might be saying, well, that's kind of kid-like on it. But it gives you kind of some simple things to kind of remember when you go to prayer. And I'm going to offer what those five things are. I'm not going to go through all the scriptures that it has on it, but I am going to just have you give you something to think about in your prayer. And the first thing is confession. When we go to prayer, do we confess to God our sin? Or do you wait for communion time to confess our sin? Now, communion time is for confessing our sin, but we shouldn't be every month getting a big long uh, list and then going, oh good, finally I can unload these things. You know, our confession is to be ongoing. Remember, we're trying to get our heart aligned with God. One thing we know, we can't have sin strongly in our, our life and be able to get a heart like God. The second area is we can ask God to provide for our needs. And so confess our sins and then for our needs. Thirdly, we ask God to provide for the needs of others. Now, I don't know about you, I kind of like asking for things. Not so much fun to be asking for things for other people sometimes. You know, I can't wait to get back to my list. And yet, if we had a heart like Jesus Christ, who gave his life, totally, came to this earth, 
totally for his elect and for the glory of God. But when you think about it, his life was one of constantly being aware of all of us in that day, all of them that he'd come in contact with, and he was sensitive to them. He was always looking for ways to serve them. Our prayers that to be doing the same thing for each other. Now, the fourth one, I have to be careful because it says the index finger because I was going to do the hand, but we're not doing that. We're to thank God for what he has done in, through, and for me. Thanksgiving. True thanksgiving. Not like the note that mom made you write when somebody gave you a Christmas gift or a birthday gift when you're a kid and you go, I don't want to write to grandma about that. Oh, come on, mom, I don't want to write that letter. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about totally thanking our Lord for everything he has given us in the past and for what he's going to give us in the future. And with that comes a mindset of whether I really like it or not, Lord, thank you for that because you know what's best for me and you know that whatever you have planned for me, I am to trust you for that. So our prayers should be very thankful to our Lord. We have to be careful because we can do things like this. Thank you, Lord, for salvation, and thank you for my church, and thank you for my pastor. Now, if you can earnestly say, do you feel thankful for those, absolutely do it. But do not just come up with mumbo-jumbo words so that you'll feel good that, all right, I thank God, and now I can move on. Our thanking to God is to be, again, very heartfelt. If you don't have that or you're not made that way, ask for God to give you a heart that is heartfelt for him, ultimately him. With that will then come your concern for others that we're to pray for. So he will give us that desire to do it if we don't have it. And then finally, our prayer should be a praise, praise to him. And when we get into the praise factor, do yourself a favor. Remember who you're really praising. Remember that this really is God, the creator of the universe. It is Jesus Christ who, who did die for our sins, literally. And then also praying for the Holy Spirit for all he has revealed to us in truth. And so if we keep those five things in mind, we're going to find our prayer life is not going to be one of oh, ho, hum, or I better hurry up and say something before I fall asleep, that you might even start making time to actually set time on your calendar, either mentally or actually this is prayer time. How often do we need it? A lot more than whatever you do now. And I'll show you why in a minute. So Paul ties praying for our leaders as a spiritual victory towards having a peaceful and quiet life. Remember the purpose for praying for our leaders? And so we can have a peaceful and quiet life. He wants to remind the church that as faithful believers, they are to be praying for their unfaithful leaders. So in review, when it comes to prayer, we are to be men and women dedicated to prayer. This is what Paul is saying here to Timothy. Make sure your people are dedicated to prayer. We're to have our prayers focus on all men and not limit it just to ourselves. Our prayers are include supplication, intercession, and thanksgiving. We are to pray for leaders whether we like their political or career track record or we don't. That's not the prerequisite that should be used to get them on our prayer list. Now think about it. We have the privilege of having the creator of the universe desiring and contemplating our thoughts, prayers, and activities that are acceptable and pleasurable to him. Why would God care, really? I can't answer that. I don't know. It's just exciting that he is. He is excited about you. You know, it seems like in the world, people like to be somebody special. They all like to stand out for one reason or another. We see it at work all the time, right? Isn't it interesting that God makes us special for his glory. Each and every one of us. 
One time I heard somebody say in kind of a setting like this, made the comment that if you were the only person that ever was on the face of the earth that God was going to save, Jesus would have come and died on the cross for you because that's what's required, right? So when we think about who we're approaching and why, how precious and special is prayer really to you? Can you, in your quiet times, not in front of a group, not in front of the church, where we'll all say, hallelujah and amen, how many of you really, me included, take prayer as serious as we should, and here's the litmus test. Does the amount of time that we pray provide us a clue of where we stand and how important we think prayer is? Now think about Timothy here. Timothy is getting blasted, in a loving way, blasted by Paul right after, take care of those false teachers, the very next thing he went to was prayer life. Why do you think he brought up prayer life so early in his letter? Do you think Paul knew that their prayers, do you think he really had evaluated all their church's prayers? I don't think so. I think Paul knew mankind. And Paul knew Timothy and the group had some challenges coming ahead that we'll see as we go on from week to week. And he called the church to prayer. And he called the church to prayer of leaders that I'm going to think the majority of those Christians did not want to pray for. So how, how, are we know, how do we know with our prayer where we are? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is what Paul wrote, right, to those in Thessalonica. Think about that. Pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean all the time, does it? Yeah, that's what it says. Pray without ceasing. Are you throughout the day praying? Now remember all the things we said beforehand. Earnestly praying. Not the praise God. I'm not picking on your prayed, but we haven't prayed tomorrow, right? That's not the thing that we're looking at here. What we're talking about is, are we to be praying without ceasing to God for spiritual direction and for us to have wisdom in how we go about our day-to-day. So after this evening, will you consider adding more prayer time daily? That's between you and God. Not looking for a show of hands, but um, we'll, we'll leave it there. We must constantly, and this is what Paul is telling them, must constantly reevaluate ourselves and see if our prayer life is a key priority that pleases God and keeps us in a proper lifestyle with a heavenly-minded perspective. Do your prayers give you a heavenly-minded perspective? Andy, would you mind uh, leading into 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4? Yikes. This verse is one of those tough verses in the Bible. This is very tough. I was just going to pass on it and say, ask your pastor after lesson about this. But there's some interesting things going on here. I'm going to give you my conclusions. I will tell you that great, great men of God have differed on what this means. Um, I can't imagine that I'd be totally the only one who would get it right. So um, I want you to be thinking about what is being said here. But I think one thing that this does is it shows that our God has a love for all mankind in general. Now, I've told you before, I love theology, and I'd love to dig into that, and my head goes immediately to, God hates all workers of iniquity, and I can go through lots of different verses here. But as I stood back and was studying this this week, and it, it took me several days to get to the point, what's the best way to address this? 
He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, we need to remember this amazing thing when it comes to God's love for mankind in generals first, and then I'll get more specific. Be reminded that this stunning truth I'm about to mention that I think you all already know. Man sinned and was provided with an amazing salvation plan. Even though the angels were not given such an opportunity prior to their initial judgment once they rebelled and sinned, the angels don't have a salvation plan. If I were God, I think I'd probably give them one. That's where my mind would go. But no, that's not what he decided to do. Those angels that fell, that no longer called angels, they do not have the opportunity to repent and to be saved. Now, when you think about that, but yet think that you and I had a chance to do that, that's awesome. That is amazing. It's a mystery of God. It's an absolute mystery, realizing that when it comes to our forgiveness, that's a good reason to pray, isn't it? Right there, forgiving us that. Now, God desires at the same time, just to confuse our minds a little bit, God desires not the death and destruction of man. Now, I'm going to Ezekiel 33, 11, listen to this. Say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn back, turn back from all your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God has a love for people. Yet we find that man is responsible for his own downfall. Downfall is not God's fault. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, talks about, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. That is, that is damnation on Israel. But God gave them chance after chance after chance. And guess what? God gave you and me chance after chance after chance. And without the gift of the Holy Spirit, without having him provide that, we'd be in the same place as Israel. Maybe worse. Maybe even worse. So let's touch on a key doctrine in light of verse 5 and what 2 Peter 3.9 says. So look, I'm, I'm doing this and it's not a good way to be clear, but I've gone on both sides of the spectrum. Now I want you to hear verse 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It doesn't match a lot of theology I know about salvation. However, first you know that God has not decreed, which means ordered or commanded, everyone to be saved. That's not what this is saying. That would be universalism, which the Bible doesn't teach universal everybody being saved. Christ will not return until every person who is elect will be saved. I, I find it amazing. Our entire existing clock that we're living through right now is predicated on reaching one point. And that point is the final elect person is saved. Then things turn to a little bit different clock. So we know those things to be true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Oh my, here comes that. One way is turn our, our minds off of when we hear this. We know what it means. But in light of what we're talking about here, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we know the past verses can't be saying, God wills everybody to be saved, so therefore everybody's going to be saved. That's not what's being taught there. What is being taught there as we look through the different words is that God is a loving God, 
And it's not like he sits up there and goes, oh, I can't wait for all these people not to be saved. He relies on us to get the word out because God loves the world, but yet not all are saved. According to uh, Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology, it's a wonderful book. I don't agree with everything he teaches, but boy, a bunch of it I do. He does a lot of a good job with things. The New Testament is clear that there will be a final judgment and not all will be saved. It is best, therefore, to understand these references that we are talking about as speaking of God's revealed will. He loves the world. His commands for mankind to obey and his declaration to us of what is pleasing in his sight. So, when you hear those kind of things, I know I did this week, I needed to adjust my thinking just a little bit when it came to salvation, understanding salvation. So sometimes we hear that those of us who believe in election won't and f or feel it necessary to pray for others' salvation nor share our faith concerning what is required for salvation or the knowledge of truth, as is mentioned. Paul is shattering that kind of lazy mindset, reminding Timothy it is every Christian's responsibility to have a heart like God, to have a heart like God, and not be willing that anyone would perish. Now, there is a thing that before I was saved, I used to use that regularly, when I would tell somebody to go to, I won't fill in the blank. It's one of the most horrendous things you can say to an individual if you really understand what you're saying when you say that. But yet it's not our responsibility to re figure out who is currently unsaved or go around guessing if someone is of the elect. We aren't to do that. We are to be spilling out the gospel to everybody and more than once to everybody who will listen. So sometimes I've done it, you've done it. Oh, my aunt, I've talked to her so many times, she's not interested, so we don't even talk about it anymore. What a horrible place for us to be there. What do we have a little ticker? I will mention it three times and then I won't mention it again or 10 or 15 or 20. I can assure you that I was around Christians when I was a non-believer. I heard the gospel a hundred or more times. And thank God that he sent another or some of the same to share his love with me. Maybe your life experienced the same thing. We give the gospel call for belief and repentance to everyone repeatedly when we have the opportunity. God gave Israel many opportunities, as we know, to turn despite their disobedience. And as we said, probably happened to you as well. So wrapping this session up just a little bit, this part, let's call this. This is a call to Timothy that we have a heart for mankind and we are to share the gospel to all of them. God does love the world, does not mean they're all saved. God loves the world, certainly does not mean all are elect. So when we're thinking about who we've given up on or who we've stopped witnessing to, I've come to the conclusion I am to stop witnessing when I'm dead. And then I hope the legacy I've left will still be witnessing, right? But I think we need to be careful, and I know there's some verses that talk about don't throw your pearls before swine and all, and I'm not downplaying those. Need to go a little deeper if we're gonna do that. But as a rule, those people you love, why don't we think God put that love and concern in our hearts for them? And so don't give up because God didn't give up on us. Now, Andy, would you mind reading uh, 2 Timothy 2, 5 through 6? For there is one God and one First Timothy. also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as 
Paul's including here the important foundation principles of one God and one mediator. This is important because in the world that we just got done talking about, that God loves the world, how many gods are there? Some of you haven't been counting. The exact number is, I don't know. But I will tell you, it's a big number. (laughs) There are a lot of gods. As a matter of fact, all of us struggle with making sure we're not God. So we're even in competition sometimes for wanting that. Not that we want to be God for everybody, but that, you know, with our sin, every time we sin, we're really saying God's not the appropriate person to be able to evaluate that because I chose this. And God, I chose this even when I know it's not in your will. Now, the only thing you can come to a conclusion on is Sometimes we want to be God. The false teaching mentioned earlier had confused followers in their church. Can you imagine the mess? I mean, suppose, suppose this evening I was uh, talking, we're, we were talking here, and I kind of said, look, Jesus really isn't the way. Went on for the next 45 minutes about this is how you're really saved. And that kept getting pounded and pounded into the church Yet in the morning, they'd hear from Rome and they'd hear the gospel. We'd hear the gospel from him. I mean, pretty soon, people are going to be going, what's going on? And then, through trickery, there's going to be some that will start saying, well, I think Gary's right on that. And this is what was happening in that church. Timothy is being undermined. Really, God was. But Timothy is being undermined. Salvation is not self-centered. It is not a plan where you are evaluated as a good or bad person. We're all bad, okay? Don't have time to get into it, but we're all bad. Comparison to God. According to the law, and no individual is their own savior. There is no, and by the way, when we witness, why do people sometimes think, well, you just think you're better than me? Right? Isn't that a common response? Because sometimes when we start talking to them about moral stuff, we part, they take it as we're saying what? <laughs> you think you're a little bit better than me? Right? And we have to be careful about that. Salvation, or as we're talking about the gospel here, the gospel is about the saving work of Jesus Christ despite our sin, despite our shortfalls, and we pass that love unto others. There is no salvation message from the one true God but Christ crucified. Period. Christ crucified. Unbelievers look at us and say things like this. The world will take a look and say, why do you talk about the blood of Jesus so much? That's gross. There's nothing more loving than the blood of Jesus. Without the blood of Jesus, where are we? Yikes. It's worth remembering, this is a Matthew Henry quote, that Christ paid a price that was sufficient for all mankind. He brought mankind to stand upon new terms of God, so they are not under the law as a covenant of works, but as a rule of life. They are under grace. I love this Matthew Henry quote because he's not throwing away the law. I think Roman might have said something about that. I don't remember if it was this morning or last week. Sunday school. Sunday school, okay. Yeah, the law is there for us, okay? But it's not going to save us. But it certainly is direction. Two verses that you likely know are fitting nice here. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works done by righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Many of you may have that memorized. Along with Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that I bet you have this one too. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Certainly knocks away the thought of, well, God chose me because he knew I was going to choose him anyway. That's not election. That's an agreement pack. 
If you're like me, God would look forward and probably had a thought on why should I save them? Which is why we never can boast about the fact that we're of the elect. We can be excited, we can pray, we can thank God for that, we can tell others about that, but it's not a thing for us to boast. So Andy, one more time, 2 Timothy 2.7, if you would, please. Just seven. Thank you, Andy. So all men need to be intellectually informed, repent, and believe that God is our Savior. And I purposely said that God is our Savior. Christ is our mediator, and Christ gave himself as a ransom for many. We should act as if this truth is the primary focus of our daily and spiritual life. Plus, we have the responsibility to have the mind of God and willing that none will perish as we share truth with all men. Are you driven to share with any and everybody because you're not willing that any should perish? All men's response to these truths impacts them for eternity. Paul boldly states that he is a preacher, meaning one who heralds, proclaims, or speaks publicly. Paul also reminds us, or anybody who reads this letter, that he is an apostle sent on behalf of Christ by Christ. Remember, this is once again saying, this is really a message, not from Paul. And when Timothy gives it, it's not Timothy, but it is one directly appointed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul then states that he is a teacher in faith and truth. Paul has an interesting emphasis stating that he really is speaking the truth. I thought that was kind of weird. You know, somebody says, I'll tell you what, I'll be honest with you. And it's in the middle of a conversation to go, well, haven't you been all along, right? Yeah, why start now? And here Paul was saying this point. This is unlike others who had come to them falsely in the name of Christ. Can you imagine? This church had to be very confused. Who can we believe? We had these nice teachers. They were good people. They're even entertaining, made me laugh sometimes. I liked them. And then he's going, and Paul, who hasn't been around here for a while, he's telling us we're supposed to do something. Who, or who am I supposed to turn to? Those in Ephesus church who received this letter and each of us are to believe Paul 100%. And there is a mass movement trying to discredit Paul. I mean mass. And it's serious, and it's fairly new, but probably not. It's probably come and go over the years. But boy, you pull Paul's pieces out of, out of the gospel, you don't really have the gospel. This is, a, this is a direct attack on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to properly interpret and digest Paul's writings and every word in the Bible, of course. Paul's authority was powerful, as we discussed in chapter 1. And in closing, I'm going to leave you with a thought that kind of uh, makes, made me pause and think quite a few times this week. Paul's authority should place a fear of terror in the hearts of false teachers for repentance and the reason I'm saying that is they knew Saul, those false teachers. And here is Paul saying, get them out of here. I mean, what's going through their mind? Is Saul or Paul going to come here and do this himself? Yikes. But that's not what Paul's doing this for. He is doing this to drive them to repentance. Remember, he wasn't trying to drive them to punishment. The reason he was telling they need to be disciplined in the church and removed for the teaching they're doing is he wanted them to repent. And the other thing is put in here when Paul says that, it's a godly fear in the hearts of Christians were to fear as well 
but we're to fear to obedience. We don't have to fear about our salvation. But you know, sometimes Paul knows we as Christians, those Christians back in those days, that sometimes what they can do is that obedience becomes a secondary issue. And we as Christians need to understand sometimes we need to be driven, at least I do, to obedience. And so there's both fears, and both fears are fears from God with a purpose. Note that both types of fear are designed to point the listener or mankind towards, both fears, to the unbeliever and the believer, towards obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. So next week, I think we might have, uh, if word gets out, I think we might have um, standing room only because we're going to talk about the role of women in the church. And that's a popular one. And um, I want to remind you, before we get there, don't get mad at me, all right? If I do it right, it should be showing what Scripture says. And there's a huge misunderstanding in our culture today on the roles of men, the roles of women, and now we can't even define one. So this will be an important, important uh, element. But I have to say, what a God, what a gospel that we have. Shall we pray? Roman, would you like to? Sure. Father, we do thank you this evening for the way you brought your word to us through our brother Gary and the efforts that you put into exposit to teach us it diligently and to be faithful to it.